On the night that Jesus shared his last meal with his followers, he was betrayed. Most of us know that. He left the city of Jerusalem behind, and he and his closest friends climbed a hill and made their way to a garden, a peaceful place, Gethsemane, where Jesus went into the center of that garden to pour his heart out to God in prayer. He was in deep distress, and for hours he prayed. When one of his closest followers who had disappeared shows back up, he approaches Jesus with what appears to be a sign of affection and trust. He kisses his master on the cheek, and it turns out to be a sign of treachery, betrayal. Do some of you know this story? Years earlier, Jesus had begun to build a following. Many men and women came close to learn what he seemed uniquely gifted to teach. From among the crowds, he selected 12 to be his special, uh, his closest followers, his apostles, the ones who would represent the 12 sons of Jacob as he reconstituted the people of Israel. They showed his mission. One of those only was from the same tribe that Jesus descended from, the tribe of Judah which is the tribe from which King David came. It was, it was this one who kissed Jesus, sending him to the cross. You know his name? Judas. And we know him as the betrayer. Why would he do it? That is an intriguing question. How could anybody go along with Jesus and be so close to him and yet turn him over in this ugly way? It's a question that has intrigued people for generations. Now, the New Testament gives us just a few snapshots of the man. So we have to infer what his motive is. Uh, historically, three interpretations of why have always sort of been in the center. First, it was greed. Judas kept the treasury, and he used to steal from it. John told this fact. He turned Jesus over because to him, a bag of 30 coins was worth more than Jesus. He did it for the money. It was greed. Uh, another interpretation says, no, not greed, it was politics. Judas was a zealot man of God. He had longed for the Messiah to come, and he wanted to see the Messiah return and establish the kingdom of Israel here in Jerusalem to overthrow the power of Rome. And in order to push Jesus into that place, Judas, he, he, he turned him over expecting that this would be the moment when he finally revealed his true power, and that's why he did it. He did it because of politics. A third interpretation says it wasn't greed or politics, it was faith. Judas was a true man of God's people, and at first Jesus seemed promising, but once he heard the Messiah begin to teach in a way that seemed to disregard the law of Moses, he became uneasy. And then when he heard him claim to be the Son of God, why, that was blasphemous. And hearing him talk about the temple as if it should be torn down, that was the last straw. Judas believed it was an act of faithfulness on his part to turn over this teacher who went in the wrong direction. It was faith. And all three of these have their uh, appeal and their virtue based on what's there in the New Testament. But the truth is they're all simply speculation because that's all we have when it comes to his motive. But if we ask of the text a different question, what was happening inside of Judas that enabled him to this 
uh, to do this act of treachery, there's absolutely no need for speculation because the New Testament says very directly and very plainly what was happening inside of him. The, in the Gospel of John, where the last meal is described, the meal before the bread is broken and the wine is poured out and before the prayer happens, before all of that, John tells us this about Judas. Look at John 13 too. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. There the explanation is simple. There is operative in the world around us a spiritual power that is malevolent, that is evil, that is wicked. Call it whatever you will. There is the uh, operative out there and even in here a force that inclines us in the wrong direction. Do you all know this? In Judas's case, it planted the seeds in his heart even before the meal happened to betray his master. Look at that word. Let's think of that for a moment and dwell on this for a bit. The kiss that began Jesus' movement from that meal all the way to the cross, that kiss, that betrayal is exactly what the devil wanted. And that's what the, the deceiver, that's what the power of evil wants still. It is for us to become betrayers. In English, that word has a sinister and malevolent feel to it. A betrayer is someone who you are happy hating because they're a person who wishes evil and nothing but it. And that's how we think about Judas. The fact, though, is that this nefarious connotation to the word betray is actually misleading. As a Greek term, the word is much less dramatic. The word is parodidomai. The root of that verb, didomai, in Greek, it simply means to give or to pass an object along. It's the word that would have been used in ordinary speech to describe a time where you gave a gift. And when you attach the prefix to it, which is para, it has a more definite uh, implication of handing over, placing someone or something into the hands of another who will now take control over what has been passed on. Like when a criminal is turned over for sentencing, uh, his fate now is in someone else's hands. In, in Greek, here we learn that Judas handed Jesus over. That sounds less dramatic, doesn't it? He put Jesus into the hands of the chief priests who would have found him anyway the next day in the city if he hadn't been handed over in the evening. Paradidomai uh, here turns out to be the only, only the first in a series of similar instances in the story where Jesus is handed over. Hard to see in English, but easy to see in Greek. Maybe you know the story. After Jesus is handed over by Judas uh, to the chief priests, they hand him over to the Sanhedrin. And that detail is told in the Bible in Mark 15.1. In English, they hand Jesus over, but in Greek, it's paradidomai, the same exact verb as what Judas does. Have you ever heard it called betray there? Then Pilate, uh, after he receives Jesus from the Sanhedrin, uh, sets him before the crowd, and the crowd chants for his crucifixion, and Pilate hands him over to the will of the crowd. Again, this is Luke 23, 25, the same Greek verb, paradidomai. 
After the crowd calls out for Jesus' crucifixion, Pilate brings Jesus to the soldiers who carry out the execution, and he, paradidomai, hands him over to them, Mark 15, 15. In every one of these instances, we see that it's not just one person, Judas, who betrays, hands over Jesus, but rather it's, it's one after another after another who each one is guilty of the same thing, Handing Jesus along, Judas, the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, the Pilate, the crowds, the soldiers, and then to the cross. All of it is what the devil wants, a long chain from the kiss to the cross of betrayal, and here's where we need precision, of handing over. I want you to think as literally as you can about what happens with Judas. He has Jesus, and then he hands him over in exchange for something else to hold on to, a bag of silver coins. Maybe it was greed, or maybe it was politics, or maybe it was faith, but whatever the motive was, we know that his heart was moved in such a way that he faced the temptation to take his hands off of Jesus in order to hold on to something else in exchange for Jesus instead. And as long as we think about Judas as the one and only person who's guilty of betrayal, why then we're all safe because we have a villain to feel much more righteous than. But that's not, that's not what the story says. The story says one after another, people, each one give in to the temptation, which I want you to hear me now say this this morning, as clearly as I can, which every single man or woman, no matter how young or old, who follows Jesus will always be tempted with every single day. It is the temptation to take one's hands off of Jesus in order to hold on to something else instead. And if you're honest about you and you use your imagination, I'm sure that you can look at your own life and see moments where you also were tempted to hold on to something other than Jesus because it seemed to be something better than holding on to him. You will be tempted to exchange Jesus for the approval of your peers. Am I saying the truth? And not just in school, of course in school, but as you grow up as an adult, the road that Jesus calls you to walk on as you hold to him is a narrow road with not a lot of people on it. The road that others are going on is wide and you have the security of the crowd and the devil will come and say, let go of Jesus, hold on to the crowd. It will feel better. And that's what it will be like. Maybe it won't be the crowd, first of all, for you. Maybe the temptation for you will be to grasp a hold of the security that comes with possessions career advancement, or some kinds of achievements, or the accolades of, of a success that in your circle counts for something. It might be at work with money. It might be in the community of faith with some kind of spiritual achievement. But again, the tempter will say, let go of Jesus. Grasp a hold of that thing which will make you feel like you yourself are valued. The devil in the New Testament is extremely subtle and very crafty. Maybe the temptation from him will be, listen now, to take your hands off of Jesus in order to grasp the benefits of faith. Do some of you know that when a person begins to follow Jesus, that person feels a unique kind of freedom? Do you know that? Does anybody know it? Help me out here. Or the joy of forgiveness? Or the pleasure of having a good purpose for your life? You know that Jesus gives that, right? Oh, the tempter will say, hey, grasp a hold of that thing because in those seasons of faith where, where joy is not as present as it used to be, and, and that happens too, doesn't it? In those moments, 
The temptation will be to grasp after the experience of faith rather than to hold on to the one and only thing that God wants you to hold on to, which is Jesus. Here's the trickiest thing that the devil does. He tempts us to hand Jesus over in exchange for our own religious ideas. And this one the devil loves. When disciples divide up from each other because they think differently about how a person is saved. Are you saved by grace through faith? Or exactly how does it work? And the devil chuckles when we hate each other because we can't agree about our ideas, our politics, our theological vision of faith, holding so tightly onto what we think that we let go of Jesus himself. What the devil wants is betrayal. And what that means is for you to hand Jesus over in exchange for anything else. In effect, the devil doesn't care exactly what it is as long as it's not Jesus that you're holding on to. And now I want you to listen because what Jesus wants is exactly the opposite. He wants you to resist the temptation to hand him over no matter what you might get in exchange for him. And instead, he wants you to hand yourself over to him no matter what you have to lose in the process. And here's the secret. Listen, when you have yourself in your hands and then you set you into the hands of Jesus, you gain everything. And you, you hold on to yourself and every other thing that you can grasp. No matter what it is, you, you gain nothing and you lose absolutely everything. You can, you can gain the whole entire world apart from Jesus and you've got nothing in your hands at all. But the moment you come and, and you give yourself, which is the one and only thing that you have now, it's just you, you give yourself into the hands of Jesus and then you have everything. And what happens, listen now, in baptism is a person says, I decide now to betray myself. Think of it in the, in the sense of paradidomai, that I hand myself over and I choose to hand myself over to the lover of my soul, to the heavenly, my heavenly father who decided in Christ to become a man because of his love for me, even when I was running away from him, even when I was going in the wrong way, even as I still persist in my disbelief, my doubt, my, my, my unfaithfulness, I know that Jesus pursues me like the good shepherd who comes after the lost sheep. And so here I yield myself to him fully and with confidence and with joy, I put myself into his hands. And that's what baptism is. And so this morning we get to celebrate that with six people who in this gathering will say, I hand myself over. Isn't that good? It is so good. <laughs> I want you to see the way that Jesus' earthly brother James put the invitation to hand ourselves over. In James 4, verse 7, he says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. There's, there's a promise. And the promise is that if you resist the tempter, if you resist the liar, if you resist the accuser in the devil, you have nothing to be afraid of at all ever again. He may be a lion who prowls around looking for someone to devour, but he is a lion whose teeth have been completely and utterly removed. He can growl still, but he can't hurt you. You resist and he will go far away. You draw near to God and God will draw near to you. And by the way, that is a promise for every single one of you. In your heart, you long for God, reach out to him and trust that he himself will come and be near 
near to you. It may be a long time before you feel his nearness, but the promise is true that he is there, and that is a promise which is utterly trustworthy. And, and this, these promises of the devil's fleeing and God's nearness are kicked off by these two words, which amount to hand yourself over. Look, submit yourselves. And that's all it is. The gift of God's invitation to each and every person is simple. It is to take yourself in your own hands and then to set yourself fully into the hands of Jesus. And anyone who does that will have their entire guilt, all of their sin and all of their waywardness washed away. And they will have, by God's grace, a new life. They will be buried uh, with Christ and, and will rise again to a new life with him. And then that person will have a hand in the wonderful and glorious mission of God's people, which is to be the light in the darkness, the salt in the world that needs saltiness. Listen to this, to be love in person in a world that is starving for love. Do you know that? Yes. And so now with joy in our hearts all together as a gathering, we are ready to be a part of this gift of baptism for Elliot and for Tom and for Nikita and for Katie and for Zach and for Samantha. We are so thankful. If you, I heard one person wanted to clap, one or two. Can we do that? Yes. We are joyful that together today we witness your decision to say very simply, I put myself in your hands Jesus. And so let's do this. Let's pray now for this very special time. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. God, we are so grateful for the gift of baptism, the gift whereby we come and say very simply, in effect, that we put ourselves into your hands and we thank you that you are perfectly trustworthy. God, we praise you that you are the God who has been pursuing each and every one of us and always will. And for this morning, as these six say very definitely that they belong to you, our hearts rejoice and are filled with joy and gratitude. Would you remind every one of us in, in these moments ahead of us of your great love for all of us as we hear the testimony of those who will be baptized? And will you build up this body, Renaissance Church, so that together we become a strong instrument of your grace and love right where you have placed us? And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.